This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. Thanks for being with us today. Very few families are perfect, as we all know, but looking from the outside in through conversations in the grocery store or clicking through social media, oftentimes it seems that we are the only ones who are struggling with raising our kids or aligning our spouses on parenting. The reality is, again, as so many of us know, most families struggle. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with an author, parenting coach, and a sought-after speaker who's actually been a guest on the show before, who's got a fresh practical roadmap for achievable family and marital harmony and happiness. Part of the problem, she says, is that when difficulties erupt, parents will often try to focus on fixing their kids, but in reality, sometimes the problem revolves around the parents and their inability to co-parent effectively. Her goal is to help couples resolve the very real tension and conflicts that arise when two people have different ideas on what is best for the kids and to show them how to navigate their differences with respect, cooperation, and compassion. That's a pretty darn ambitious goal, wouldn't you say? But I think it can be done. I'm Armin Brock. We'll start talking about how to preserve and strengthen your marriage as well as launch emotionally healthy and happy young adults when Positive Parenting continues right after this. Green light. Hey, girl. School zone. I'm getting hungry. Car changing lanes. You want to meet me for pizza? Stop sign. Intersection clear. Yeah, street. Pizza sounds good. Ball in street? Girl in street! <gasps> it's hard to concentrate on two things at once, like texting and driving. Stop the text. Stop the wrecks. How will you stop texting and driving? Tell us at stoptextstoprex.org. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Vicki Hopeful, who is the author of Parenting as Partners, How to Launch Your Kids Without Ejecting Your Spouse. Vicki, thanks for joining us. Let's start at the very beginning, I guess. I mean, we do talk a lot on the show about uh, launching kids and failure to launch, and we've talked about relationships between spouses, but never really combined the two. And it's interesting that, that you would make a connection there. What's that about? Well, I started to notice a trend in my coaching. Um, more and more parents were talking about the divide between what they wanted for their kids and what their partner wanted for the kids. And they couldn't seem to agree on a plan or a strategy or how to work cooperatively in the best interest of the kids. And it started to cause stress and a fracture in the relationship, and pretty soon that kind of spilled over onto every area of their parenting. So it seemed to me that it was probably time to connect how our ability to co-parent successfully um, has a lot to do with how effective we are when we implement a new parenting strategy and introduce it to the kids, what their response is, um, depending on whether they see their parents on the same page or kind of fighting against each other. 
Um, and so I started to explore where parents could go for resources that would help them through these moments of challenge. And as it turns out, there's not a lot of information on the market. Um, there's a lot in terms of helping parents co-parent once they've been divorced, but my goal was to help them co-parent successfully to avoid a breakup in the marriage. Right. Well, what are the kinds of things that are the issues that they're facing? I mean, the parents, so the, the, the kinds of disagreements that they're having about the, the kids. Well, it can be about almost anything. So if you start thinking about the day with the children, it could be as simple as, um, I think the kids should get up with an alarm clock, get themselves dressed, and feed themselves without any help from the parents. And the other partner says, oh, no. I mean, all my memories as a child were my mom and dad were there, and they helped me, and they were available. And suddenly you have two people who are trying to convince each other that their way is the best way. And so it can be a push and pull, like one day one parent wins and the next day there's a change in the strategy and you can imagine what this does to the kids like what are we doing and what day is this and who's in charge so you can find these challenges in almost every area of our life with kids and that's part of the confusion is we think of it in terms of the big issue um, maybe bedtime but I have found in talking to thousands of parents that it can creep in almost anywhere um, and kind of sideline everybody and create a tension in the house that isn't necessary. And it sounds like it's not only teenagers and young adults. I mean, when you when you hear the phrase launching your kids, it tends to be used in that way, that they're talking about actually kids moving out of the house and whether you're maintaining some sort of sense of, of connectedness to them or attachment to them or dependent, they're making them dependent on you. Uh, but you're talking about much younger kids as well. I am because I think, it, it you know, we launch them, they leave at 18, but that's not when the launching begins. It begins when they're two and they're up on their feet and they have two hands and they want to become more involved in family life. And if we're at odds with our partner over everything from how to get kids up and how many chores should they should have and how much TV they should watch and whether we should help them with homework and how much technology and do manners count and should we send thank you cards, it's really hard to launch a successful child while you're being combative with your partner. So it, it, the book is really about how to come together and make decisions jointly that are in the best interest of the children so that you can see their progress. You can uh, assess if they're growing and maturing and becoming more independent with each year. And how do you begin to do that? Well, I think the first is to identify um, kind of the areas where you, where I call it an intersection. You and your partner seem to have the same idea about, you know, whatever area of life it is with the kids. And there's this kind of confidence and enthusiasm that gets generated when you're talking to each other and you're making eye contact and you're nodding your head in agreement. And somehow that strategy is far easier to implement and execute and follow through with. And so you see the kids begin to thrive. You see the kind of progress that you want to see in the children that says to you, we're on the right path. When that doesn't happen, 
we tend to kind of go to our corners and say, well, I'm with the kids more often, so I'm going to do it my way. And the other partner says, well, when that partner leaves, I'm going to do it the way I want. And, you know, we get combative with each other. And unfortunately, then the kids suffer because they don't have role models or an established strategy that everybody agrees on. And is that absolutely necessary, or can't kids get along with doing things? I mean, they certainly do it. If you, you mentioned divorce, they certainly manage to do that in mom's house. Something happens in dad's house, something else happens. Couldn't that work in the same house as well? Absolutely. If both parents are willing to support each other and say, listen, when you're with dad, do it his way. It's a great way to learn an alternative. But when there's this underlying resentment and power oh. struggle between the partners, that's no good for anybody. Right. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And so yeah. how do you get to this point where you can actually see that the best interest of the kids is in mind? Or actually, let me go back a little bit. How do you see that you're not doing that? Because I think that particularly in intact families, everybody just sort of assumes that they're doing things for the best interest of the kids. It's only when you have a divorce that that phrase comes out as kind of a weapon. Well, that hasn't been in my experience in the last few years, and that's why I decided to write the book is I would get on the call with parents, and initially it looked like we were going to talk about you know sibling rivalry. But very quickly I realized, wait a minute, one parent has one idea about what sibling rivalry means, and the their partner has a completely different idea. And that's where the breakdown was, was that they were both fighting with each other, each other for position. Um, and that left uh, somebody either had to give in, uh, somebody felt like they were giving up, somebody felt like they won and gloated, and there was no real sense of collaboration and let's make a decision that's in the best interest of the kids. So even intact, highly functioning, loving parents find themselves in these moments where they just cannot come to agreement on what's best for the kids. And so the book was written to kind of help flush that out and find a way to get through those beliefs in our heads about, well, a good parent would do it this way, so that's how I'm going to do it, and consider other options. Consider kind of melding two people's ideas into one and then looking at the child and saying, I think we're going to be successful with this. Let's give it a shot. Well, even just having the phrase in your mind, this is how a good parent would do it, that kind of sets up a hostile <laughs> environment in a way because, by definition, anybody who doesn't do it that way is not a good parent. Exactly. And that's the interesting part of all of this work is that we make decisions about the kinds of parents we're going to be between the ages of 9 and 14. And we don't realize it, we're doing it, but um, there's a great exercise by Dr. Frank Walton that I use with my clients, and it's very simple. You look around your home between the ages of 9 and 14, and you think to yourself, wow, I really love this about my family. When I get to be a parent, I'm going to do it just like this. And you kind of capture that moment and that decision, and you store it away. Oftentimes, you look around your home and you think, woof. This is really distasteful. I am not doing things that way when I get to be a parent. And you capture that, and it gets stored away. And suddenly you find yourself in, as a parent, and you know, you know this if you have kids, suddenly you have to make a decision. Well, where do you go for the decision? You go to your database. 
and your database says, wait, we have an experience for you to draw on. This is not the way you want to do it. This is what bad parents do, and this is what good parents do. And before you know it, you're reenacting your own childhood without stopping to pause to consider what are the ramifications. Talking with Vicki Hopeful, who's the author of Parenting as Partners, How to Launch Your Kids Without Ejecting Your Spouse. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Vicki about uh, a lot of other things, and I want to get into how your own childhood experiences affect everything else. I'm Armin Brock. You're listening to Positive Parenting. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Vicki Hopeful. She is a parent educator. She's got more than 25 years of experience. And this may be the biggest thing of all. She's a mom of six. Vicki's also the author of Parenting as Partners, How to Launch Your Kids Without Ejecting Your Spouse. And want to talk a little bit about, or have you talk a little bit about, you know, these disagreements that we're having. Mm-hmm. Often they're not about what they seem to be about. Right. I mean, it's not about whether somebody gets up early in the morning or whether they throw their socks in the corner. It's about something else. And and that something else comes from your own being a kid. And how do you do this without deep therapy? (laughs) That's a great question. That's why I wrote the book, because I I don't think most of us want to go back and rehash our childhood for weeks on end to try and come up with a clue that informs us. And so over the course of several years, I just started to compile these very simple questions that parents could use to answer that would give them the clarity that they needed so that they could look at their childhood in privacy and say, that's where that idea came from. So is this an idea that I want to cultivate? Do I want to recreate this experience with my own kids? Am I trying to reject this idea? Um, from my own childhood, and when you get clear with yourself, when, you, when you've really looked at your childhood um, quietly and with some privacy and, and you've had that aha moment about, wow, this makes total sense to me now. Now I know why I want my kids to sit quietly at the table and use their manners and um, you know, ask for permission to leave. It's because my childhood, it was a crazy mealtime and I wanted something different for my kids, you are so much more willing to share that information with your partner who suddenly can look at you and go, wow, it makes total sense why it's uncomfortable for you when things start to escalate at the dinner table. So how can we create a mealtime that is enjoyable for everyone? And in a split second, not only do you have clarity about yourself, but you have a partner who is willing to support you instead of fight against you. All right. We have to go back just a little bit because this is that the, the phrase split second is the thing that that always hangs me up on on this and so many other things. You know, so many people just don't do that. They don't take that split second. They don't take the breath that we just get bounced around from moment to moment and from from uh, reacting to everything rather than actually being proactive, as you're suggesting, with having a conversation or thinking a little bit more clearly. How do you uh, help people do that in the time that we live in where we're just insanely busy and nobody has time to do anything? 
Well, we've we've designed the book so that it can be you can you know grab a small portion. It's not let's overhaul the entire family, and for the next two weeks you're going to be on this journey. It's about saying you know what I have not gotten the results around homework that I hope to get. This is not going well for anybody. Let me go answer a few questions about homework and see if I can flush out what decision I made when I was a kid that is now influencing the decisions I'm making as a parent. And because they're so specific, by the time you answer all those questions, and there are probably 15 or 20 of them that are yes or no or um, this applies to me, you suddenly begin to see the pattern. You're kind of transported back to your own childhood, and you can grab a hold of that moment when you made the decision. And as an adult, you can now bring that clear thinking to that moment, and that's when you see the aha bulb go off. And my experience with parents is once you have an aha moment, it's a little bit like getting out of jail. You, you feel free to explore new possibilities. You're not as defensive about your position. So it's finding five or ten minutes and saying, I don't want to fight about this anymore. So what am I willing to do to change things in my home? And do you find that people have a difficult time getting there? that there's a certain amount of, of heel digging in that needs to be done or that is done? There's Because you're not required to talk about it in depth, that you're really just trying to grab one moment and a decision you made, it doesn't feel cumbersome to the, the folks that I work with. They say it's a very quick and energizing experience, which is what I was really going for. So that you didn't get muddled down and, oh, my God, my childhood is so horrible and how can my parents do this to me? It's more about, like, where do you want to go and how can you use that information as a catalyst, as a motivator, as a driving force to get you where you want to be? All right. Can you give us a couple of those questions and go through a few of them? Um, yeah. In terms of, like, homework, um, so I, I say imagine yourself at the table and you're 10 years old, and you've got a paper to write or a math page to get through. Where are you sitting? What are your parents doing? How does your body feel? Do you feel confident? Hmm. Is there a timer set? So that you're really transported back, and in that moment, a parent starts to get a feel for what was happening for them, and then the next series of two or three questions is, and what decision did you make about homework and how you would help your children? And a parent gets that immediately. It's so visceral that you can almost see it in their eyes. Like, I know what I decided. I decided I was never going to pressure my children. And then they realize, oh, but maybe I'm a little bit too flexible with my kid. Maybe they need more structure. But I haven't allowed it because I did, and, and they don't need me anymore. Then they're like, I got it, I got it. And the great part is that then you can go communicate that to your partner, and suddenly both of you have this great information that you can use in the best interest of your child. So you can really do this on your own. You don't necessarily have to go through it together, although that Absolutely. sounds like it would, it would definitely help, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. So it's designed for you to do it privately so that you don't feel the pressure to share more than you want to. But then there's an opportunity to come together and share that and then um, a way for you to talk about how do you blend your ideas. 
you know, what's going to move you forward together? And I think there's a real thrill in, in coming together as parents and looking at each other and saying, you know, we did this intentionally. This wasn't an accident, what we're doing right now with this child. And that creates momentum in the home. And it models for our kids how to work with our partner instead of against them. Well, that was bridges very nicely to what I was just going to ask you. Is, is there a point when you bring in the kids and you say, you know, this is how I did it when I was a kid, and this is how mom did it when she was a kid. What do you like? What, what would be the best way to motivate you? Because it's, it's entirely possible that, that, they're, that neither mom's or dad's is correct, and the one that would work for the kid is something in between or something out of left field. Absolutely. And what I have heard back from my coaching clients is that when they get clear with themselves and the defensiveness is gone, they are so much more willing to invite their kids into the process and to share their own experience, to apologize for kind of, you know, being a helicopter parent if, if that's what they were going for. And the kid, they say that their kids are so appreciative of this new understanding that they have about their parents as human beings and not just parents, that they're willing to say, you know, you guys, I think this is what I might need for myself. Could we try this? And the parents are so willing to say absolutely because they've gotten rid of that. There's a right way and a wrong way to raise kids. There, there are a million perfect ways to raise children if we invite them into that process. But it first means that we have to get clear. You know, we only have just a minute left. I want to have you just very quickly. What What is the the biggest question that you get from parents in your coaching? How do I get him to understand he's wrong? You're talking about the child or, or the husband? No, this is, this is the partner. Or how do I get her to understand that she's making things worse? So I think there's this propensity for us to point the finger at someone else because we haven't been taught how to be reflective first. And part of my work is about before we point the finger and say they have to change, let's see if there's anything you can learn about yourself that might make the process easier for everyone. And that's kind of the launching off point. Vicki Hopeful is the author of Parenting as Partners, How to Launch Your Kids Without Ejecting Your Spouse. And uh, you mentioned a couple of times talking, doing coaching on the phone. How can people reach you? They can go to our website, www.vickihopeful.com. Okay, and they can find out about the book there or and many, Anything many other else? things. Okay. Yeah. Vicki, thanks so much. Thank you so much. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armand Brott, and it's time for a Parents at Play segment. Just about everyone, young, old, and everything in between, is fascinated by magic, especially the kind that involves transforming objects from one thing into another. This week, we take a look at a number of terrific family activities that do exactly that, whether it's changing a ten of clubs into a ten of hearts, a bunch of powdered ingredients into delicious cupcakes, or a locked safe into an unlocked one. Magic, silver edition from Thames and Cosmos. Long before Harry Potter and his friends at Hogwarts took over the world, kids and adults wished they could conjure things out of nowhere and make them vanish again, turn apples into oranges, and make objects float in air. 
With this kit, you'll be able to perform jaw-dropping feats of magic that will captivate and delight your audience and probably amaze yourself in the process. It comes with props and instructions to do a hundred tricks. Knots in one rope jump to another, a wand levitates, coins pass through objects and disappear, a small pile of sugar turns into a sugar cube, and a lot more. The kit comes with a nicely illustrated 72-page instruction manual, but there are also 26 online video tutorials so your budding Houdini can see the tricks actually being performed. If you like the silver edition, there are several larger sets for 150 and 200 tricks, for example. They are for ages 8 and up, cost about 21 bucks at many retailers or thamesandcosmos.com. Chocolate Pen from Real Cooking now you and your little bakers can get your inner chocolatier on and create some very professional-looking, not to mention tasty, treats. The kit comes with four preloaded pouches, each one with a different flavor and color. Melt the chocolate by dropping the pouches into hot water. Then put the pouch into your pen handle, batteries required but not included, and you're ready to go. Write words or letters to customize cakes and cookies, draw shapes, or use the included molds to make guitars, hearts, rainbows, and more. Since each pouch has its own writing tip, switching colors is a breeze. The chocolate hardens fairly quickly at room temperature, even faster if you put it in the freezer. And cleanup is really, really easy. It's for ages 6 and up, costs about 25 bucks at realcookingkids.com. The Ultimate Baking Starter Set from Real Cooking. This well-designed, kid-friendly kit comes with real kitchen tools that make cooking fun and a lot less messy. It includes two non-spill bowls, measuring cups, a whisk, a pastry bag with tip, spatula, 16 silicon cupcake liners, a one-touch egg cracker that eliminates the need to fish around in the yolk to remove pieces of shell, and most of the ingredients to make eight magical tuxedo cupcakes and eight sprinkle surprise cupcakes. Of course, you'll have to provide the eggs, butter, and milk, but you wouldn't want those things to come in a box anyway, right? It's for ages six and up, but only with adult supervision, because you'll need to use a real oven to bake those treats. Costs about $45 at retailers everywhere, or more information is at realcookingkids.com. The Electronic Safe Breaker from Yulu. When this battery-operated safe closes, the combination is set to a random number. Players pick a card and turn the combination locked to the number on the card. They then use the fingerprint scanner to test the number. If it's correct, the safe opens and releases some coins. If it's not, the player uses the spy stethoscope to get a private audio hint. A high beep means the actual combination is higher than the card played. A low beep means it's lower. Be the first to open the safe, and you get the coins. The most coins wins, of course. But beware of the alarm coin, which means you'll have to put all of your treasure back into the safe. The game combines equal parts deductive reasoning and luck, and will be fun for two to four players ages six and up. You can find out more at yulutoys.com. You'll find reviews of many, many, many more toys and games that you can do with your family at our website, parentsatplay.com. You can also drop us a line if you have a suggestion. We'll be back next week with another brand new Positive Parenting show. But don't go quite yet because, as you know, there's a lot more of this Positive Parenting show coming right up. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brat after this.
from the MrDad.com radio network. Okay, forest animals, today is a new day. Kids are coming to the forest, and it's up to us to make their visit a good one. Sparrow. Yes? Have you practiced the most popular bird songs for the year? Of course. Catchy. I like it. Okay, river. Dude. How's the temperature? It's a refreshing 52 degrees, man. Perfect for a little riverside shoeless relaxation. Ah, good. Owl, you hear? Cool. Who's asking? I am. Look, you know the drill. Sleep during the day, scare the kids at night. Perfect. I love my job. Uh, oak tree? What's up? Still in the same place I left you last year. That's what I like. Consistency. Well, it's not like I'm going anywhere for the next couple hundred years. I know. I love it. Uh, turtle. Turtle. He's not here yet, man. Ugh, he's late every morning. You'd think he would have learned by now to leave the night before our meetings. Okay. Squirrel, has anybody seen Mr. Squirrel? The forest has been preparing just for you. Visit a forest near you today. To learn more about cool things to do in the forest, visit discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Now, get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. Hey there, welcome to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. Thanks for staying with us. I'm Armin Brott. Love and marriage are two of the greatest gifts that life has to offer, but too many marriages fall apart because couples don't fully understand the five stages of relationships. Because most of us have had hurtful experiences in past relationships, often going back to childhood, we develop an inaccurate love map that causes us to get off track when the stresses of life increase. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with Jed Diamond, who's one of the world's leading experts on midlife relationships. Over the course of more than 40 years of counseling men and women, he's found that too many relationships end when they could be saved. There are certainly some couples, no question, that shouldn't be together. And when one person leaves, it's really a blessing for everybody. But most couples just don't know how to make a marriage that works for both partners and lasts a lifetime. And things are only getting worse by the day. Between 1990 and 2010, the divorce rate among adults aged 50 and older doubled. The good news is that Jed's here, and he's going to be telling us about the keys that he's found to having a long-term successful relationship. I'm Armin Brock. We'll start talking about how couples can repair even the most damaged relationships and reweave the broken strands of marriage, and why the best is yet to come when Positive Parenting continues right after this. I'm in almost every school bus and classroom. You see me around the neighborhood, and you tell me that I'm a pretty good kid. Well, I'm one out of every five children in America, and I'm struggling with hunger. Please visit feedingamerica.org today and find your local food bank for ways to help. Every dollar you donate helps provide eight meals for kids like me. We are Feeding America, brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. My guest for this part of today's show is Jed Diamond, who's the author of The Enlightened Marriage, The Five Transformative Stages of Relationships and Why the Best is Still to Come. Jed, thanks for joining us. Well, it's good to be with you. Tell us a little bit about 
what it is about marriages and relationships that just for some reason doesn't seem built to last. Or at least it doesn't seem that way. You're going to tell us that there's more to it than there, than than what seems. But why is it that we have this idea that they're not built to last? Well, I, I think that's because so many of us have had experiences that we we planned for a lifetime of marital bliss, and it didn't didn't work out that way. I know I was one of the people. I've been a marriage and family counselor for more than 40 years, and I thought I was immune to that kind of thing. I thought I had all the answers, but uh, my first marriage uh, ended after 10 years and had two kids that uh, we then raised uh, not living together and got married again, thought this was it, and that marriage didn't work out. So I really, before I, before I tried again, I really wanted to figure out uh, how can marriages last. I, I've been teaching people what should work, but it didn't seem to be working in my own life. So yeah. that really was then the beginning of my trying to figure it out. Felt like I'd finally gotten some answers and met my wife, Carlin, and she and I have been together now for 38 years. So I feel like we learned some things, and a lot of then what we learned I shared in the enlightened marriage book. Right. Well, I, I want to read something right, from the introduction, which I thought was very intriguing, and I want to tie that back to your your life as well. Uh, it starts off like this. I don't love you anymore. I'm not sure I ever did. I'm moving out. The kids will understand. Now, when Laura Munson heard these words from her husband of 20 years, she did a very strange thing. She didn't cry. She didn't protest. She didn't fight back. She simply decided not to believe him. She made a commitment to us and refused to let her husband's midlife changes destroy what they had built together. So I'm, I'm, I read that and I'm thinking about what you just said about your marriage is not working out. Do you look back and think, hmm, maybe if I would have done something differently, those could have worked out or are, would they never have worked out? Well, it, it's a good question. And obviously it's hard to know what might have been if you had been wiser, Sure. <laughs> what yeah. choices we might have taken had we known now or then what we know now. Um, but I, I, I think the, and the reason I, I use Laura's experience in the intro is that I think so many of us have views of marriage that are, are not realistic. You know, some of them are the romantic, everything's going to be wonderful, we'll live happily ever after, and then when difficulties arise, we're, we're really not prepared for it. And we think something's wrong, and I think many people bail out of relationships before they would need to if they really understood more realistically what, what marriage really was about and how to have the kind of relationships that really can last through time. And those are, I think, some of the the navigation that we were able to figure out and try to understand really what marriage was about and how we can, you know, with this added knowledge, have the kind of relationships that we all would like to have. All right. So give us a quick overview of what the five stages of marriage are, and then we'll get into at least a couple of them. Okay. So part of the problem is, I think, that uh, when we reflect back, and this is certainly true for me and I think for a lot of people, that we have a view that if we think about marriage stages at all, we really think of two stages. We're, we're familiar with the first one, uh, I call it falling in love, and 
uh, you know, that's where you, you know, you finally find that person that just feels like this is it, and we have that crazy head over heels experience, and we can't sleep, and this is absolutely the passionate partner for me. And then we understand if we then make a commitment, get married, or move ahead, that that isn't going to last forever. And then we know about stage two, which I call um, building a life together. And that's the stage where we, you know, we settle in and our career is going, hopefully, and we begin to think about and then have children. And then, the, you know, the view is, and then we live happily ever after. <laughs> uh, and whether we think of it that way, that's kind of the belief. You meet, you know, Prince Charming or uh, Sleeping Beauty or whatever our image of finding that magical someone. You build a life, live happily ever after. And the first clue that I got, which I didn't understand at the time, that that wasn't what it was about, is my, my first wife and I had gone to hear the renowned psychologist Carl Rogers. And this was in his latter days, shortly before he died. And he was talking about marriage. And at the time, he and his wife had been married something like 58 years. And he was obviously an older man. And he was kind of reminiscing, you know, a kind of a little side tour as he was talking about, here's what you need to know about marriage. And he kind of was saying, yeah, you know, remember, he's saying to his wife, Helen, there was that rough spell that we had. And I thought to myself, rough spell? He's the expert. How, you know, how could he have a rough spell? You know, we were young, my wife and I, just getting started. And I was amazed that, you know, a renowned yeah. psychologist who's talking about marriage could have had some rough time. Then he went on to say something that was even more hard to understand, which was, he said, yeah, you know, that was that 12 to 15 years where things were really hard. And his wife kind of nodded, yeah, oh, boy, <laughs> yeah, those were, those were pretty tough years. Boy, and that's a depressing thing. 15 years that you had hard times, and we're just getting started. I couldn't imagine having hard times at all. And if we did, you know, maybe a week or two, and you certainly, if you had a hard time for more than a year, you'd, dang, I'm out of here. That's, so I, I began to see maybe hard times are part of the long-term relationship didn't understand that at the time did later and that's where we got into not just two stages but actually five stages of a marriage including stage three which we call disillusionment which is where often the hard times begin to happen right and that's that's apparently where a lot of people just call it quits right there exactly and you, what you're saying I mean, what you said is is i would say mildly depressing to some people who have heard that to say oh you mean there may be a stage where we're going to have 12 really unpleasant years which have come you know th those 12 unpleasant years or at least difficult years could come on the heels of you know, what maybe a year or two years of joy and bliss yeah, or more. I mean, uh, yeah, hopefully more. Often, but yeah, you know, ours, you know, hit after you know six, seven years that seven-year itch period. But I think there's two things that I, I think are important to say. One is, if you understand that there are going to be hard times, that it isn't, and they lived happily ever after, you can head off a lot of the, you know, the difficult times. Number one. Secondly, the difficult times, if we see them as having a different meaning than 
what most of us begin to feel, which is disillusionment, meaning I've made the wrong choice, or the marriage is not happening the way it's supposed to, that I picked the wrong person, or they were great at the beginning, but somehow, you know, my husband's changed, or my wife is not the wife I married. And that's where we then conclude that we need to leave. Now, if we understand the meaning of stage three, I, I think of this marriage, not the the sweetness and light and they lived happily ever after, but more like a hero's journey, you know, where you go through some dark nights of the soul and you have to fight some battles and some dragons and some, you know, some, some challenges and you kind of go down in, you know, in the darkness. But if you see marriage as that kind of a hero's journey, that kind of a vision quest, then that time has meaning. And that's where I really developed you know, in my own life, and share then what is the meaning of this stage three disillusionment that if we understand it, we can navigate that more successfully and then get to stage four, which I call real lasting love, which is pretty wonderful again, and then an even fifth stage, which is even better, where we fall in love again and we can actually recapture some of that that in love, head-over-heels feeling that we had when we were young, only now in a marriage that's lasted, you know, 20, 30, 40 years. Right, and that's it's going to be kind of reliving some of those earlier moments or at least getting back in touch with what brought you together in the first place. Well, it's even more than that, because what we, we, we now know, both from science of love and marriage, is that when you fall in love, you're not actually seeing the real person that you're in love with, right? We're, we're projecting a lot of our hopes and dreams, a lot of our, our desires, a lot of our unfinished business from our, our childhoods, and we, we're projecting what we want our partner to be, not who they really are. So when we hit those hard times, we think we've been betrayed. You know, you're not who I thought you were. Well, that's not because they've changed so much, but because we're beginning to pull back the veil of illusions and we're starting to see a real person. Right. And if we understand that, that time can be one of going deeper, of really getting to know ourselves. And, and this is an important part of this stage, healing a lot of the childhood wounds that we had that really kept us from really knowing ourselves Right. and kept us from being able to find and love a real partner. So this healing stage, which I call stage three, disillusionment does not mean I picked the wrong person. It means an opportunity to move beyond the illusions that right. we projected on our partner and to find then a real person and a healing of old wounds that now enable us to have real love that's the stage four real love with right. a real person with their flaws and difficulties but really okay. loving a real person not our projection we have lasting love that doesn't have to you know go down in flames because we are not healed to be full whole people talking with jed diamond who's the author of the enlightened marriage the five transformative stages of relationships and why the best is still to come we're going to take a quick break when we come back we'll keep talking to jed 
Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, I'm Armand Brat talking with Jed Diamond, the author of The Enlightened Marriage, Five Transformative Stages of Relationships and Why the Best is Still to Come. So, Jed, let's talk a little bit about, you know, I think we probably the, the most effective use of, of our time here is going to be to talk about the, the difficult parts of, of marriage, not all the, the things that mm-hmm. make it so wonderful, because hopefully we're, we've been in situations where we know how wonderful it is. So how does this disillusionment phase begin? I mean, is it is it, you know, one of these things where you look at the person that you were so in love with and all those quirky facial looks and different kinds of things that you thought were so lovable, all of a sudden you realize, I don't like that anymore. Is is that where it starts, or how, how does it begin? Well, I think in my experience, and I think the experience of a lot of people, is it starts with children. <laughs> Not only our, our, our child self and our, our past starts to bubble to the surface, but when we have children of our own. You know, I've got now five children between my present wife and I. We had myself and my first wife had two children. And what we know is, you know, children are tough. You know, that's part of, I think, what nobody quite understands when we're young and planning our family is how difficult it is in this modern world to raise children. And some of the problem, I think, is that the the world of social supports that has been part of child-rearing through much of human history and extended families and communities that were tight and stayed together, we've lost a lot of that. So as a result, when you have two people often that now are trying to raise a couple of kids without strong extended family and other supports and community, it really is beyond what many people can do. And so in many ways, we break down under the pressures of family and work and, you know, a lot of the stresses in society so that when we hit this this difficult time, we have a tendency to blame our partner. You know, we don't realize, you know, that we, you know, the, this feeling of I should be able to handle all this. I mean, I should be able to be a parent and I should be able to, you know, do my job in the world and I should have time for my partner and time for myself. And so I think in some ways we really try to do too much and we have again, an unrealistic expectation. So the disillusionment often gets projected onto our partner. You know, it must be something the wrong with them. Right. And I hear it with, from a man's side, because I work a lot with men, you know, they'll have all kinds of, of things they're saying about their wives. My wife is this, or she's not that, or she's not giving me this. And in the course of the therapy that I do, you know, I, I have a little shorthand that they come to see is that the problem isn't with your wife. The problem is your life. And it's really life that's not working. And if we can help you get your life more manageable right. and stop blaming your partner, of course, this works with women as well. Right. Women Jed? have a similar blaming their guy. So that's yeah. where we begin to help people move Let, let's, beyond that. Let's go back a little bit to the expectations part of thing, though. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it can, as you're you're talking about all this, I'm I'm thinking, well, how is it that people had the expectation that they would be able to all of a sudden handle kids? I mean, unless you're in a, a second relationship or a third relationship or something mm-hmm. where you've had that, especially the first time around, we have no idea how right. how it's going to affect your life. And and I mean, I've heard the 
some it was a wonderful quote a few years ago that I tell the guys in my expecting fathers class about as a woman was asked to describe the difference between the way having a kid was going to be everybody talked to her the way that it was and the way that it actually turned out to be and she said oh it's like the difference between uh, you know watching a tornado on TV and then having one tear the roof off your house <laughs> so yeah. you know it's it's that you think well oh how hard could it be the kid's a little kid it's going to be the two of us together and we'll watch this beautiful child grow up but we have no idea how that's going to hit you. Well, that's that's right, and and I, I think it's part of the uh, change that's gone in society, where we really have fewer social supports than many of us had in earlier periods of of human history, and times where communities were more tight knit, and there were other social supports. I mean, I know when I grew up, all the neighbors were like surrogate parents. You, you know, everybody parented, you know, the thing it takes a village. And I think there's some truth to that. And we don't have that now, but we don't realize what's been lost. You know, it's more invisible so that when the tough times come, we we really don't expect it. We We didn't see it coming in many cases, and we don't know what to do. And often, as I said, we we tend to think, the problem is our mate, and maybe if I could get out of the relationship or start over, or and we we both underestimate, you know, how healthy it could be if we could work things out, and we we think things will will be a lot easier if we became single parents and I didn't have all this hassle and I'd be a better parent to my son's right. daughter, whatever, and then we find out often, hey, it's really hard being single parents and the kids get even more difficult when they don't have, you know, fathers and mothers together. So often we mm -hmm. jump out of the frying pan into the fire. And what I've been trying to do and what I've been teaching for, you know, the last 40 plus years is how we can really go through all these five stages and hopefully keep our families intact and not go through the divorces and separations right. that are you know, devastating so many families in yeah. our society well, let's, today. Let's talk about some of the specifics there, about how it is that we can recognize that you're in this disillusionment phase and then take some steps to repair it, to make it so that it doesn't cripple the relationship or end the relationship, but that we can use, use it as a tool to move forward. How do you do right. that? What are you teaching people in your, in your practice? Well, the, the first thing is, is kind of a, a change in the story we're telling ourselves. One, if you assume there's only two stages, the falling in love, building a marriage, and we lived happily ever after, then when things don't start working well, we assume something's wrong. So the first thing is a subtle just being able to say, hey, you know what? It can be really tough. That's, that's part of the deal. It isn't, you know, happily ever after all the time. So that helps, just letting people know, you know what? Your, your relationship is not a problemed relationship. It's actually pretty normal. Uh, so step two, then, is given that a lot of people have been through this, if we then teach you some tools for how do you deal in stage three, how do you, in fact, change the focus from my spouse is the problem to we've got some things to work out together and with some support and guidance, whether it's therapy, support groups, or just more informally, you know, reading books and learning 
new things, we can develop some of the skills to work through these stages. So those are the, you know, the beginning stages. And then once people start seeing things can get better, we, this downward spiral that so many people get caught in begins to reverse. And you start saying, ah, things can get better. Yeah, we can solve these things. Ooh, I do need more supports. And I guess I got to bring in a larger support system and, you know, the men getting in men's groups and women getting in women's groups and parenting groups and, you know, there's a lot of things that we, once we know the problem isn't me or you, right. we can develop a larger social support system. Mm-hmm. Now, is part of this, do you think, a recognition of the, the changing role that at the very beginning you have a tendency to want to spend all of your time with somebody and to look at this person as your best friend and, and everything? But, you know, at a certain point, I think more mature people realize, well, you know, this person can't Sol- can't be everything to me, that right. I have to have different friends for different tor- different types of purposes. It seems like that's a, an important realization to hit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean we found that. My, like I say, my wife and I have been together for 37 years, and it's not, I think, by chance that I've been in a men's group that's been meeting regularly for 38 years. And my wife and I both talk about, and she's been in women's groups, that being able to have other people in our lives that we're very close to and that we can love and get support from really has allowed us to develop and deepen our love in a way that we hadn't in our early relationships where we didn't have those other supports. We just thought, I'm in love with you. It's me and you against the world. We don't need anything but each other. And then we find out we need more than we're able to get from each other. Exactly. And we yeah. feel something's wrong if we need something outside the marriage. That means there's something wrong with the marriage rather than, oh, geez, you know, we need more. It's part of being human. And if you can accept that and get that, then marriage can be a lot more wonderful when it doesn't have the pressures of having to be everything to each other when that's really impossible to do. Jed Diamond's the author of The Enlightened Marriage, The Five Transformative Stages of Relationships and Why the Best is Still to Come. Jed, thanks so much. Great to have you. Yep, I've enjoyed being with you and glad to share what we, we've learned. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.